you will join me in a word of prayer. Today we come in our study, our study of the minor prophets, to the last of the 12 minor prophets. It's the book of Malachi. It's the last Old Testament book. We'll be looking at that today and then also next week. We are kind of doing a bird's eye view of these books. We're not looking at them uh, real closely and verse by verse, but trying to get a, a sense of what they are about and what the message was that they spoke so long ago. And today we are on this, uh, this little book, Malachi. Now, some have said this is the one Italian prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, but that's a myth. Uh, it is Malachi, and he was a Jewish prophet who was speaking to the people who had returned from the exile after 70 years in captivity. They've returned back to the land. They have begun to rebuild the temple. You remember the last two prophets that we've looked at, Haggai and Zechariah, they ministered at this time as well. They were encouraging them to continue the work of the building of the temple. Uh, Malachi is about 100 years, maybe a little less than 100 years after those prophets and after the return. And he is addressing a lot of the things that have happened and are happening in the land of Israel. Even though they have returned, they've been chastened by the Lord in captivity, we find that many of the sins of their forefathers are sins that they themselves are participating in. And there is, here in this book, uh, what we might say is disappointment on the hearts of some of these people. Haggai had been speaking about the fact that the Lord, in a little while, is going to shake the heavens and the earth, and he is going to fill this temple with great glory, and in this place there will be peace. And in many ways, I think a lot of these, these people in this time have become disillusioned, and they think that God has forgotten about them, that God really doesn't love them, and that they are doubting his love, and so they become disillusioned, disappointed, we might even say depressed, a lot of doubts in their hearts, and there even is this sense of uh, cynicism on their part towards the Lord. And what we're going to find is that there is many comments that they make that suggest these things to us. They're just not in a good place spiritually. In many ways, some of them are being very hypocritical, and there is strife that is rampant in the land. Now, as we look at this, as I have been studying this week, I thought, you know, I don't think it's too hard for us as followers of Christ, if we are Christian, to be identified, be able to identify ourselves with them in, respect, in many respects. Sometimes we can find in our own life that we, we've become disillusioned or we've become disappointed with God and We've often had thoughts, maybe we've not spoken them verbally, but we have thoughts about God and we wonder about his love and as we look at situations that we find ourselves in. And so I think we can identify in many respects with the people of Israel of this time. We see in us often uh, what we see in them that we'll be looking at here today. 
And God sends Malachi, and the word Malachi means my messenger, and he is speaking as all the prophets on behalf of God to the people of Israel who are back in the land but not doing well spiritually. He's a contemporary with two other men that we know. There are books about them that have been written, Ezra and Nehemiah. They were working to rebuild the wall at this time, and Ezra was working to also address the spiritual needs of the people. And so here is Malachi, the messenger of the Lord, and we might refer to him as God's disputer. He is disputing with the people of God concerning their spiritual state. And what we find in, in the uh, first well, in this little book is a series of six disputes that God gives to the people of Israel through his messenger, Malachi. And these disputes are against a people whose hearts have become hardened. They've become obstinate, and it's reflected in their life. And this is going to become evident as, as Malachi begins to expose this. It's kind of like he sticks the swab up the nose and the test comes back. They test positive for spiritual COVID. Um, I was sticking the swab up my nose and you'll be glad to know that it came back negative yesterday. Um, So I'm thankful for that. But here the test results are that things aren't good among the people of God in Israel at this time. The first dispute that is given is that this is that they question God's love. And right off the bat, he begins and says, I have loved you. God comes in grace and says to them, I have loved you. Because they have doubted this. And we see it in their response here. Their response is a cynical response. And they say, but you say, and we're going to find this like a dozen times, God affirms something, says something, and then they say in response, they kind of go against or they counter uh, what God says. And they say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Because things have not gone the way they thought they would go. The script hasn't unfolded the way they expected. They were expecting great glory and they were expecting... um, the kingdom of God to come in great glory and power, and things are not well. They're still under the Persians. They do not have a king that is ruling. The Messiah has not come. And there is this, again, this cynic response, oh, yeah, you've really loved us. And there is this doubt about the love of God. And so God is going to respond to this. And he says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Now you remember that Esau was the brother of Jacob. They were twins in their mother's womb. Esau was the one who was first born. But when we talk about the patriarchs, we speak about Abraham, Isaac, and who? Jacob. 
Now, Esau was the firstborn. We don't speak about Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. We speak about Jacob. And you remember, as you read in the book of Genesis, that God said the older is going to serve the younger. God swapped things here around, and he pronounced blessing upon the secondborn twin, that was Jacob. Jacob, I'm going to make my covenant with you. My covenant promises are going to come through you and through your line. And so he is saying to the people who are descendants of Abraham, descendants of Jacob, look what I have done for you. I've not neglected you. I've not forgotten you. In fact, I have brought you out of captivity. I've brought you back into the land. And I've restored you here. Look at the descendants of Esau. They were the Edomites. And there is judgment that has come upon them. They have not cared for their brother Jacob. They have opposed him and, uh, and opposed him on various occasions. Esau was one who had no heart for God. He was one who, who sold his birthright for, a, uh, for a, um, a bowl of soup. He wasn't concerned about spiritual things. But you look at Jacob. Jacob was the supplanter. <laughs> but God had chosen him and said, Jacob, you are going to be the one through whom I am going to bring about the blessings that will come, not only to my people, but to all the world. And so we see in this the sovereignty of God, don't we? We read in Deuteronomy 7 as the Lord speaks to Israel. And he says this, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. Why did God choose Israel? Why did God choose Abraham? Why did he choose Jacob? Was there something special about them? No. No, it was his love, he says. You are the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath that he swore to your fathers, that's why he has loved you. It is his sovereign love that he has loved you. This is the reason of God's choice for Jacob. I remember reading about Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, And as he was preaching through Romans 9, where we find this verse quoted, that Esau I have loved and Jacob I have hated, he said a woman came up to him after the service one time, and he said, Pastor, I I have a lot of trouble with this verse. And Spurgeon said, I do too. And she said, I just don't understand how God could hate Esau. And Spurgeon said, oh, that's not my problem. He said, my problem is how in the world could he ever have loved Jacob? That's my problem. And you know, if you're a believer today, you, you, <clears throat> you know that's true of yourself. How is it that God could love me? If I am in Christ, if I belong to Jesus Christ, how is it that he could ever love me? Well, Paul picks up on this verse, and this is what he's making the point in Romans 9, that it is a sovereign love that God has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he hardens whom he hardens. There are those that he has passed over and leaves to their own wicked devices, but there are those that out of grace and mercy he has chosen before the world ever began. He set his love upon them. We can read about this in Ephesians 1 where Paul says, we have been blessed for a Christian, and we're in Christ. 
We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ who chose us in Christ that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Paul says before the world ever began, God set his love upon his people. He knew them and he chose them. Now this is a hard doctrine often for people. But if we know anything of our own hearts, as the Bible says, left to ourselves, there's only enmity towards God. Enmity. No man seeks after God. Left to himself, we would continue to go our own way. But God in grace has purpose to save out of a mass of fallen sinners in Adam, a people for himself upon which he displays and bestows grace and mercy and draws them savingly to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, as he writes to the Thessalonians, he says, as I look at you, as I see what God has done in your life, I can see the fingerprints of his grace upon you. And I am caused to give thanks to God that he has chosen you for salvation through sanctification and belief of the truth. And writing to Titus, Paul says this, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds that we have done in righteousness, because we have none, but he saved us according to his own purpose and grace this long before the world ever began. This was his purpose. Now, there's a lot of things that are hard and difficult to understand about these truths, but If we're a believer, this is our testimony. There was nothing to be seen in me that God would ever set his love upon me, that he would ever choose me and call me to himself. It is all of his grace. And so Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, What do you have that you have not received? All right, Christian, if you're a Christian... What do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, why would you ever boast? Everything that we have has come to us by grace and mercy from our God. But in light of that, sometimes we can be like Israel of old. We can doubt God's love. We can get in a position sometimes, especially when maybe things are hard, where we question or we wonder or we doubt God's love for us. I remember years ago in a bookstore, I found a a teenager's devotional book, and the title of it caught my attention. And the title was this, If God loves me so much, why can't I get my locker open? And, you know, maybe sometimes we feel like that. If God loves me so much, then why am I facing the things that I'm facing? Why am I going through the difficulties that I am going, going through? And it can cause us to, to, to question God or to doubt God's love and to doubt his goodness and his grace towards us. And what we do is we get our eyes off of the gospel. We get our eyes upon our situation rather than seeing again the big picture 
of what God in his grace has done for us. And we lose sight of that. And what we need to do is to grasp afresh the immensity and the wonder of God's great love to his people. Paul in Galatians 2.20 says this, that Christ loved me. Now in other places Paul said Christ loved the church. Other places Christ loves his sheep. Christ loves his bride. But here Paul says, this is an amazing thing that Christ loved me and he gave himself for me. He gave himself for me. The very son of God, the treasure of heaven, the father sent him into this world to bear the judgment and the wrath of those that he had given to his son to redeem. And he willingly laid down his life for them that they might be pardoned and forgiven and reconciled to God. And Paul is lost in wonder that he would love me and that he would give himself for me. Brothers and sisters, when we get in that place where we wonder and we doubt the love of God, maybe because of our circumstances, we need to get him off of our circumstances and we need to go to Calvary and we need to see the great love of God to his people through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says it's the love of Christ that constrains me. It compels me. That's what drives me, Paul says. It's the love that Christ has shown toward me. And may it be so in our own lives. And maybe today, maybe we just need to be reminded reminded of this love of God. He's not dealt with me according to my sins. He's not left me to go my own sinful way. He's renewed my heart. He's given me a new heart. How gracious, how kind God has been to me. And so may we see afresh the love of God, that he loved me before the world ever began. There's no room for pride here, is there? It is a humbling truth. And the gospel will always exalt the glory and the grace of God, and it will humble the pride of man. Secondly, we see uh, a second dispute here, that they were profaning God's worship. We see this in uh, beginning in verse 6 through chapter 2 and verse 9. And he says in verse 6, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you. So here is Malachi who is bringing this case from God to them, this dispute that he has with them. A son honors a father, a servant honors the master. But where is the honor that is due to me? It is missing. It is lacking. And here he is addressing specifically first the priest and then later the 
the, the rest of Israel will be brought in at the end of this chapter. But he, first of all, addresses the priest, and he says, this honor is not being shown to me, and it's, it's revealed in your worship. It's revealed in how you come to worship me. You have profaned the worship of the Lord, the manner in which you worship. And notice their response is, but you say, the end of verse 6, but you say, and again, here's this cynical response, how have we despised your name? We've been doing, you know what we're supposed to do? We've been doing what you've called us to do. God responds by offering polluted food upon my altar. And you say, here's the response again, how have we polluted you? And the Lord's response is by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Their profane worship is seen as verse 8 says, when you offer a blind, blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show, show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And so the Lord is saying, what you are bringing to the temple as offerings, as sacrifices, which God had prescribed them to do, they were not bringing the offerings that God had prescribed. They were to bring the best. They were not to bring animals that were lame or sick or had blemishes. They were to bring the first fruits, the best, the best offerings. But what are they doing? They're profaning the, the worship of the Lord by the priests, first of all, allowing the people to bring these sacrifices that uh, were, were the lame. They were the sick. You know, they look at their, they look at their flocks and they say, you know, well, this one's kind of sickly. He's not going to do me much good. Let's take that to the temple and we'll offer that to the Lord. And they despise the house of the Lord. They despise the altar of the Lord. And God rebukes them for this. He said, would you do this for your governor? Would you bring a gift? You, you want to go to the governor and uh, you want his favor? You want to please him? Would you bring one of these sickly lambs to the governor? Would you do that? Would you bring home flowers to your wife that you went to the cemetery of a fresh grave, picked some of those flowers off of this recently buried person and got some of those flowers, took them home to your wife and said, here, these are for you. Would that honor your wife? I don't think so, if she found out where they came from. And so would you do this for your governor? Would you do that for other people? But yet you would do this toward your God? who is king, who is to be honored, who is to be lifted up and exalted, would you do this for him? And so there is the rebuke of the priest, but also there are the people. They too are bringing these sacrifices. 
verses 13 and 14. You say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock, and he vows it, and yet he sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. These priests were supposed to be those who protected the holiness of God, that he is this great king, He is a great God, and he is to be feared by all those who draw near unto me. I will be treated as holy, and both priest and worshiper, they are not treating him as holy. So this worship of God is being profaned. In chapter 2, he is going to go on to rebuke these priests. And sound warnings to them. But right now he says in verse 10. Oh that someone would just go into the temple. And shut the doors. Close up shop. This is an abomination to the Lord. Now. As we think about our own lives today. What kind of worship. Do we offer to the Lord. Do we not sometimes give him the leftovers of our life, our time, our energy? We really don't give a lot of attention to gathering with God's people, making that a priority, gathering with them, and really coming prepared to give glory and honor to him, to sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord our God. Our minds are distracted, and we are preoccupied with other things. And just in our day-to-day walk, we really do not have a heart that is yearning to know the Lord and a heart that is desiring to glorify him, to magnify him. Other things, other cares have taken over our heart. Hearts are far from him and sometimes cold. And I think this is a dispute that God maybe would have with us at times. You worship me, you honor me with your lips, but Jesus says your heart is far from me. May God help us that we would not be hypocrites when we come to worship, but that we do come with our hearts prepared to worship God, to lift up his name, to sing with joy in our hearts to him and the grace and mercy with which he has loved us. 1 Peter 2.10 says this to the church. You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are his own special people. The very terms that he used of his people of old, he now is applying to the church. You are my special people. For what purpose? that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, 
but who now have obtained mercy, and you now are a people of God. But what is the purpose? That we might proclaim the excellencies of our God, that our life might be testimony to this great grace and mercy and kindness that God has had upon us to make known his excellencies. So here's this dispute. They have not only underestimated or doubted the love of God, but they have also, they have not taken account of the the majesty and the glory of God, his great glory, and they have not offered up sacrifices that show him to be the glorious God and king that he is. I think we're going to stop at this point. I have many other points here, and we're not going to get through them all, but I think we're going to stop there at this point. And I, I pray that God would help us. We'll look at the rest of this next week, and we'll see that in the midst of this, that God promises there's coming a Messiah. There is coming the promised one. And he's going to come and he will judge his enemies. He will deal with those who are the enemies of God's people. And he will carry out his purposes for his people. And therefore, they can trust him. Just hang on, wait. God will be faithful to his word. He says in chapter 3, verse 6, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob, you're not consumed. I haven't changed. My purposes continue. And today, as we close, I I invite you to take your insert, and we're going to sing together, Come Praise and Glorify Our God. This is taken from Ephesians 1. We're reminded today of we be in Christ. If we are a Christian, a follower, and a lover of Christ, God has been so merciful and gracious to us in him. And all the glory and honor is to be to him. But maybe you're here today, and you're not a follower of Christ. You've never bowed the knee to Christ. You're, you're still like a sheep going your own way, living your life for yourself. Maybe you're made to see today that, you know, the the human condition is far worse than you ever could have imagined. The Bible says you're dead in your sin and your transgressions. Dead in your sins. You're without hope and without God in this world. But a Savior has been sent into this world to save sinners. The call of the gospel is to put your trust in him. And in him alone. And one of the ways that God, the way that God draws sinners to himself is through the preaching of the gospel, through the preaching of Christ and him crucified. God's love is found in one place. It's found in his son. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And if you're here today without Christ, we point you to him. Herein is salvation, and herein is where the love of God is found. It is found in Christ. Let's stand together as we close and sing, Come Praise and Glorify.
Father, we thank you today for such mercy and grace that you have had upon your people. We thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. We recognize that everything we have, if we be in Christ, is a gift that has been given to us. What, have we rec- what do we have that we have not received? And if we have received it, why would we ever boast? And Lord, tonight, this morning, all of our boasting, all of our glorying is in you and in your grace. Today, we thank you for such great love with which you have loved us. And Lord, you are deserving of our heart. You are deserving that we would love you with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. Lord, make us to be a people who would love you in that way. Continue the work that you have begun in us. And for any that might be here outside of Christ, Lord, may they today, may they run to Jesus, the only Savior of guilty, helpless sinners. And may they find life in him. We read these words in Paul's epistle to the Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be glory forever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you. You are dismissed. Thank you.